Welcome to First World Problems, the podcast, episode number three, brought to you by To Die For Clothing. this episode, we will be reviewing some music from Tiger's Jaw and Killing the Dream, and we will also be reviewing the movie Skyline. And we also have a special guest, music industry veteran Roy Culver. Thank you very much for listening. We really appreciate all of the new people that are checking us out, because at this point, you don't really have a reason to. So, thank you. Keep listening. Be if you want be to. Be more positive, Ray. I know. Sorry. But I, no one should listen to us right now. Everyone should listen to we, us. We, Tell all your friends. We hardly know how to record this thing. <laughs> That's true. But we're able to. So. Sort of. Please email us at fwppodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at fwppodcast. And for the end of the year episode, we would love it if you were to call our Google Voice hotline, which is 657 657- Eight five nine one seven six one, and please give us your top record of the year. If you say something cool, then you may have a chance to get on this actual podcast, which is, of course, very, very prestigious, and it'll make you world famous or internet famous or something like that. Next, we have our quick hit section, quick hit, which is basically one simple recommendation of something we all enjoy in life. In some way, shape, or form. So, I'm going to go ahead and start off with asking Joey. Joey, what is your quick hit for the week? Uh, it would be the Real World Road Rules Challenge Cutthroat. <laughs> That's probably one of your favorite shows. <laughs> <laughs> Why is that so funny? You like that, Scott? <laughs> <laughs> This is uh, America's fourth sport. I'm sorry. So, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Scott, with my childish ways. It's Joey's, I, I can attest to Joey's long love for this program. It is the best reality show on TV. It's everything you'd want. Survivor. Shitty people. Does it just take, does it basically just take a mixture of every single reality program and put it all into one? Pretty much. Just drunk, sex, fighting. And eliminations. And eliminations. That's good. Everything you'd want. All right. Cool. So fuck you, Scott. What pretentious thing do you have to recommend? <laughs> good to know. <laughs> Scott still hasn't chosen his quick hit, even though we've prepped him. And he knows how the show goes. Uh, Roy, I would love for you to let me know what your quick hit, your, your recommendation, so to speak. Well, up until about 20 minutes ago, it was uh, <laughs> probably um, uh, It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. I've really gotten into that show. Um, since then, it's a guy named Dean <laughs> in Dustin, California. I'm talking to online and trying to get to come over to your house. Our podcast studio, you mean? Our podcast studio. This, this <laughs> is not Ray's house. No, we, Don't rent, come looking for us. we rent out a studio just to do this professional podcast for $100 an hour. So. Uh, I can't talk much about Dean, but uh, <laughs> did you say that it's always, are you caught up? When it's always yeah, uh, up to the end of season five. Everything on oh, DVD, okay. yeah. So you have not seen the most, the lot, the no. season. Okay. No, not Never at all. mind. It is, it is a very good show. I enjoy it. Yeah. I did. They, I definitely think they could have jumped the shark and it could have been. Did you, are you caught up? I have not watched this past week. So episode. you've seen Lethal Weapon 5. I have. Okay. Which was incredible. It's one of the best things I've ever done. Is exactly. that the most recent one or yeah. one of the most Two recent? weeks ago. Oh, okay. Yeah. But, um, yeah, good recommendation, Roy. Scott? I'm going to recommend In Treatment. It's a show on HBO. One of the lowest rated shows on television. Good call. The the best show on television. Um, Yeah. Done. Tap out. How many seasons do they have of that? Season uh, three and each season's like 40 episodes. I've I've seen the first season. I saw part of the first season. Did you get to the end? No. I I, I borrowed it from the the library. Did you like it? It was okay. Are we talking about the same show, the guy who's a therapist, but also... Gabriel Byrne is in it? Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. Yeah. It's a, it's a guy, he's got hair. He wears <laughs> yeah. t-shirts sometimes. <coughs> Maybe. Kind of tall. Dark hair. I apologize, I'm sick. 
I know he sounds really different, doesn't he? Away. <laughs> Silent. <coughs> Can you try to do that away from the microphone, Scott? No. All right. <sighs> My personal quick hit is a book <sighs> from uh, it's it's a funny book though. Mike Berbiglia, oh. the stand-up comedian. I'm familiar. Yes, I knew you'd be familiar. He's uh, he wrote a book called Sleepwalk with Me, which is basically just kind of a. I mean, it, it's a humorous novel, but, you know, it's definitely a look at his life as far as what he's experienced and funny stuff that he's encountered throughout his life. I actually went to buy it the other day, and I thought $26 for a 180-page book was a little bit much. It's, it's a, a little, little pricey. A little I, I purchased it through the iBook store, and that was, I think, $10. I like so, holding things. I, I do. I hold things, too. Well. Books as well. I hold, I hold my iPad and I read it on there. There are other resources that enable you to well, uh, download <laughs> books for free. Hey, for blow your free. nose. Scott, that's illegal. And, and I, I, I don't, don't, con- I don't Try to catch me. <laughs> His name condone. is Scott Arnold. His email is... Shh. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, that concludes our brilliant quick hit section. Quick hit. <laughs> beep, 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 beep. <laughs> Next up, we will be reviewing two records. The first one is the new Tiger's Jaw. This new record is called Two Worlds. It's their, I would classify it as second full length. It's their second official full length. Sure. They have a first one. Yeah, which is actually longer than this one. This is 11 minutes, or 11 songs. 11 minutes? 11 songs, 26 minutes. Their first one's like 29 minutes. So I thought that was interesting. The self-titled. LP. No, there's a, there's one before that. Oh, there is. There's a there's a secret. It's, I don't think that's why it's not an official falling. Yeah. Okay. Ray's falling apart. Yeah, he's <laughs> no, uh, well, that's why I have Joey here. He's he's able to help me walk through the information behind Super the release. Super highway. The internet. <laughs> yes. Hotly anticipated. A lot of people are interested in listening to this because uh, this band has definitely built a lot of hype around themselves. Um, within the hardcore scene and without outside the hardcore scene, I find that unusual. Yes, they they don't sound anything. They're not very aggressive. Correct. There's always a couple bands though that are accepted in the hardcore scene. Why they, is that? If you you I, can't I, listen to hardcore all day, and there's about a handful of trainers. bands that are accepted I, by that. I think in Ti- Tiger's Jaw's case, it all came from Title Fight. Are they buds? Oh yeah, and Title Fight is more of like a pop punk band, but they are. You know, they're all straight edge kids and they were, uh, they were like immediately accepted yeah. in hardcore. And then they kind of, everyone started talking about Tiger's Jaw and I think it just kind of definitely helped. Cool. Yeah. Anyways. And Run For Cover is releasing this and we like to thank Run For Cover because they sent us this record before it was released. So thanks guys. And we know we're as big as alternative press. So we really appreciate you sending it before. <laughs> we really appreciate you sending it before Street Date. So thanks Jeff. Thanks. Um, I pretty much know how this is going to go. <laughs> I already see Joey and I liking the record and Scott and Roy having a difficult time <clears throat> listening to it. But let's see if we can break any stereotypes whatsoever. Joey, please start us off with something positive, maybe. Uh, I love this record. Um, I think they're kind of in a tough place because their first record, the self-titled, is universally loved. And I think when it came out, uh, I would even call it like a kind of an instant classic where it's going to be years and years down the road. People are going to look back on that record. And while this record is very strong, I don't think it's as great as the first one. So I don't think it'll be tough for him to over overcome that. But I probably listened to it seven, eight, nine times. And the more I listened to it, the more I liked it. Uh, and yeah, no, in the end, like I love it. I think it's a very, very solid record. It's a grower, not a shower. It's definitely, no, I mean, yeah, and to a certain extent, I, when the first time I listened to it, I really liked it. But the more I listened to it, so, the more I liked it. Yeah, 
It was, I think the best word in my estimation to describe it is it, it's charming. That's that's what I get with this record, where it's like, it's it's fun to listen to, it's enjoyable. Uh, they definitely focus on. They definitely focus on more of the you know like the synth parts, so to speak. Like that's more prevalent in this record than. The, it actually seems like they got a, a decent recording. Yeah. Whereas, I kind of, sort of, look at it like the Get Up Kids, where mm-hmm. Four Minute Mile, is you know universally like I mean. I mean, for me, at least, it's my favorite Get Up Kids record, but it kind of sounds like shit. Yeah. And then there's something right home about, which is, a, you know, another solid record, but with a better recording. But just kind of like that, taking that. Yeah, that road. Definitely. All right. Well, Scott, knowing where do you stand with most bands that aren't adult contemporary? <laughs> uh, what did you think of this record? I didn't like this record. There was nothing I could find that was appealing to me. The songs were too short to get started. Um, I just didn't like it. I listened to it twice. I don't know if that's enough to get a good feeling for it, but it wasn't for me. That's okay. Not everything can be. Sure. Yeah. Do you want to rebut any of my points? I mean, I think you're incorrect, and I think you you don't see like how people would like this record. You don't see the appeal to it at all. No. Okay. And oh, let's talk about the artwork. What do you think of the artwork, Joey? I didn't really look at it. Let's pull it up. We have time. <laughs> no, you're to start laughing for another twenty minutes and then blowing your nose. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry, Tiger's Jaw. I'm sure they really care about your opinion. <laughs> I can. I. The only thing I do agree with your review, Scott, is the songs are definitely short. You know, but that is what the band kind of does. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, that's pretty much the only thing I can agree with. <laughs> I, I do think, because since their first record, they've put out a 7-inch and a split, and I think this is definitely better than, than those releases. Totally. I yeah. agree. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. Roy, seeing that you might land firmly in the Scott camp, um, or what what do you think of this record? Uh, Don't put any words in his mouth. I know. I um, It wasn't a record that I would spend too much time listening to. I did listen to it once. Um, in some ways, it reminded me of some of what was coming out of um, sort of like the Get Up Kids, sort of what Joey said. I mean, definitely in the later 90s. Um, That's a good reference. Bands like Glory Records, stuff like that. I didn't really like that genre stuff. I mean, it never really did much for me. And this record definitely kind of took me back to that time. It's not like they did that genre well. It's just not something I was really particularly interested in. Yeah, yeah. So. See, that's what I call a professional review, Scott. Not. I didn't like it. Sorry, Tiger's Jaw. <laughs> We're just kidding, Scott. We, we love you. No, we don't. But the yeah, obviously, I agree wholeheartedly with Joey. I think this, in my opinion, this is the best Tiger's Jaw that I've heard, which is you know could be saying a lot for people that are already fans of Tiger's Jaw. But um, I just really like the progression that the band has taken because this. This record could be completely underwhelming. It had every opportunity to just be like, wow, this is boring. This doesn't do anything. It's not exciting in any way, shape, or form. Um, But, yeah, I love the record. I think that most people that are even just remotely fans of it should check it out. I actually got a little, and Joey, correct me if you think this is invalid, but uh, I actually got a little Limbeck in it. Like, as far as the fun quality of it. I can hear some Limbeck. Yeah, like, hi, everything's great. The good Um, Limbeck record. Exactly. Um, so yeah, I got that definitely in it. And then I definitely, I love the way that the guitars and the synths work together because those, both of those things could be a mess in a band like this, but they're able to really, they're definitely, they're definitely able to marry those two ideas and be able to actually write, you know, inventive songs that, uh, are different than kind of what a lot of bands are doing right now. What'd you think of the cover, Ray? Uh, the cover's cool. I mean, it's it, the artwork has never been a huge part of this band's repertoire, so to speak. Um, you know, it just kind of looks like something that you might see in a uh, you know second grade classroom, as far as like the cut and paste and random stuff. I don't have a problem with it. It's not as cool as the reissue of their first record, which was just pretty much a big <clears> slice <throat> of pizza. Yeah, but it's cool. You know, the, the cover art's not going to make me not buy the record. Yeah. So there. Has the, the cover art or artwork of a record ever 
provoked you to buy a record or not buy it? To buy a record, there's stuff that I've seen like, well, this looks cool. And then, you know, 50-50, but I've never, never maybe not buy a record. Mm-hmm. I think the only time that I ever choose to not buy a record based off the artwork is if it looks... If it literally looks like amateur hour, in mm-hmm. the sense of, you could tell that they did not put any thought into this whatsoever. That's when I'd yeah. be like, well, do I need to buy the vinyl of this? Probably not. Well, vinyl is a big question for me because there's so much. <clears throat> Excuse me. The prices on vinyl are getting so expensive now in stores. Yeah. And when it comes to just like a plain just sleeve to throw into it, I just won't even buy it anymore. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Yeah. That's the next downfall of the major labels is them pricing single vinyl or single LPs at twenty dollars. Yeah, it's ridiculous. Yeah, double LPs like that. I remember that that Macedon, the mm-hmm. you know Blood Mountain reissues that they did, where it's like, dude, double LP forty five dollars. Yeah. Like, you gotta buy it. I, I know <laughs> I did, but <laughs> but yeah. So I think we have. That's a good question, though. Have you ever not bought a record because of the artwork? No. I have. I certainly have. Sure, I know. Because yeah. the, your background is definitely more artistically inclined. I either like it or I don't. That's like kind of yeah. what I... There's no variations in between there for me. Hmm. But You should put some critical thinking in your head. I do. I either like it or I don't. <laughs> that's that's the end destination. One, two zeros. <laughs> so, Joey, what number would you give this record? I would probably give it an eight. Cool. Scott, we'll have to divide everything by two, remember? No. I've changed my scale. Okay, what's your <laughs> to scale? go along with everyone else. Oh, but thank you so much. I'm going to give this record a five. Okay, that's I, I appreciate the effort. Okay. Roy? Uh, for me, I mean, it's just not a genre for me. I, I hate to even give it a grade, but I would say probably a four. Okay. And we appreciate that honesty. Brutal. Uh, I, I would definitely agree with Joey. I would say eight would be my grade as well. So, <laughs> Tiger's Jaw should probably be picked up by people who are remotely interested in this band. It's a, yeah, I think it's a good place to start. Yep. Yep. We're here to destroy the Also reviewing the new Killing the Dream EP called Lucky Me that's coming out on Death Wish. And we'd like to thank Death Wish and Eli the Vocalist for helping us out with a uh, pre-release stream of the record so we could hear it out. And um, As a professional podcast, we cannot thank people for sending us records to review. Well, we can thank them when they're sending us before Street Date. Because considering the fact no one needs to send us anything. As a journalist... I'm not gonna you are not a journalist. <laughs> I, I, I you don't pretentious know if, piece of shit. <laughs> I don't know if we've ever viewed ourselves as journalists. But anyways. I do. Yes. You're well, the worst journalist ever. Jo- Joey and I collectively thank... Stop it, Joey. <laughs> Joey and I collectively thank Deathwish for sending us the release when they didn't need to. Yes. That, that's where I'm going with it. Thank you. Uh, God. Uh, it's this band's... Second EP. Uh, I think they're c- calling this a, f- not treating it more like a. MCD. I don't think they're treating it as an as an EP. Yeah, I think it's more. I don't think it's an LP. It's obviously not an LP, but yeah, it's seven songs, one interlude. It's, so six. Songs I mean, it's eighteen minutes long. Yeah, Touche Records. Nineteen. The sure. Trash Talk record was fourteen. Sure. I mean, I know that. I mean, it's a twelve inch. It's not a seven inch. Yeah, that term is definitely loose for many people these days, but. So we'll we'll just we'll just say seven songs, LP ish, EP ish. Um, it's said to be this band's final release. Um, I don't know if that's actually going to happen because the band has kind of existed in this weird we play shows occasionally bubble. Um, but regardless, this is their newest release, um, and uh, yeah, I would love to hear Roy. I'd love to hear your opinion on this because I know that you know you are a hardcore ish fan. I like a lot of heavier stuff, yeah. It's it was an okay record. Um their album Fractures prior to this one I liked. Uh it, it still wasn't a record I listened to a lot, mm-hmm. but appreciated. Um this record was more the same. Yeah. I mean it didn't really you know, there wasn't much about it that made it stick out in my mind. Um a good effort. I've listened to it maybe three or four times just to make sure I can wrap my head around it a little bit. Um mm-hmm. we'll continue probably listen to it just to make sure that, you know, I feel like I'm understanding it. But yeah. Yeah. It was just okay. Yeah. Just okay. Would that push you to listen to the band, like, 
either see the band live or revisit any of the records in the past? Uh, I would definitely go see the band live. I think they're you know they're a good band. They've put out some good stuff. Uh, given the opportunity, I would definitely go see them live. Yeah. Cool. Uh, a lot, with a lot of this genre, particularly the the more spastic, you know, um, crazy hardcore metal genre, just throwing a bunch of adjectives out there, but um, there's just so much of it. Uh, it's really hard to stand out, and and this record didn't do much to stand out for me. Got it. That makes sense. Joey, so, where did, where did you land on this record? I I really liked it. Um, Killing the Dreams of Band I've never really gotten too into. I've never not liked them, but I've never been a super fan. You've never got lyrics tattooed on your arms. No, never. Uh, but um, if they are, if this is truly going to be the last record, I think it's a, a good way to go out. Um, I think the way you know someone might disagree. But I think the the way they incorporated some of the clean vocals uh, worked really well on this record, and yeah, I thought it was I thought it was a great job, and I would definitely listen to it again. And and I know I'm going to steal what you're going to say, but uh, this would make me go back and listen to probably at least Fractures. I never was that into the first full length, but uh, I thought Fractures was good. But just kind of always, I was always just kind of forgot about it. But this I think will bring that back and. Make me want to listen to make me want to listen to the band as a whole more. Yeah, it's always been tough for this band. I think just because they obviously haven't been active, the only way that they could really get the word out is obviously via Death Wish, where it's like, oh hey, we got a new release coming by these guys. And I think Fractures totally fell into that, where it's like no one really was aware of it unless you already were a fan of the band. So it's like no one knew was checking it out. So yeah. And there was a couple songs on this record I was just looking looking through that I, I made a mention of like the, there was a song called Testimony that sort of stood out, but as far as the record as a whole as a whole it didn't didn't blow me away. Yeah. Okay. Some good decent songs though. Scott. Uh, this isn't really a genre for me. <laughs> so it was cool. Yeah, you just I mean, you because I know you, you do like some heavy music, but you're more it's really of, selected. Right. About five percent of the collection. Right, and so you're more of the um, the artistic heavy stuff. If I wouldn't or... say that, Ray. No, I, but I mean, I'm, I'm just I'm just saying that's like that is where you would land. Like what <clears throat> what old school hardcore bands? Because that's kind of what this genre of band falls into. Like what? Who do you like? So people can kind of get a, get a gauge of where oh. where this would land. Like you know, Girl Biscuits. Do you like them? No. Okay. Uh, do you like... We're not going to go very far. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. That's fair enough. I mean, I know your favorite band of all time within that genre is Zao. <laughs> for, for obvious reasons, because our, one of our, our guests had a very large hand in signing the band to two male records. Um, probably the greatest lyricist of our time. <laughs> yeah, I definitely, I definitely think that is correct. Someone else would agree in this table, too. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, yeah. anyways, needless to Pass. say, you, yeah, you, 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 surprise, surprise. You listened to seven songs and it completely just went in one ear out the other. But it's okay. I mean, I, I, w- I was going to be shocked if Scott said I like one song off this record. Well, that means you'd have to listen to one song off the record. <laughs> I listened to the whole record twice. Okay. Cahill. <laughs> okay. All right. <clears throat> I. Loved this EP in ways that I never thought I would love this band, Killing the Dream. The only thing that I really enjoyed from the band was their first EP. When their first EP came out, I was like, holy shit, where'd this band come from? Like, this is incredible. The Bay Area. Exactly. I I quickly found that out (laughs) once I looked at the liner notes. Wikipedia. Uh, Wikipedia didn't exist when they first released this. Burn. What was life like back then? Yeah, pre-internet. No, it wasn't pre-internet, but... Anyway, so uh, I, like Joey, kind of always traveled around the band, so to speak. You know, I, I enjoyed what they did, but never really fully committed to the idea of loving them. Um, but yeah, this EP completely blew my mind and made me, like Joey, revisit everything that I had listened to casually in the past. Um, I just think, uh, like Joey says, the clean vocals didn't exactly do it for me but the more i listen to it the more i kind of like sunk in a little bit where it's like oh okay like i see what they're trying to do yeah i think it works yeah like i mean upon first listen i was like oh my gosh this is like oil and water like this <laughs> sounds terrible but then 
the more I listened to it, I, I, I got exactly where they were coming from. Um, Wasn't there something about this band? Was this band, didn't they have some connection to Embrace the End as well? Yeah, they featured, the original EP had two members from okay. Embrace the End, um, which is another Bay Area hardcore band. Full exposure, I mean. Full disclosure. Disclosure. <laughs> Scott, is Scott wants full exposure. <laughs> Scott is apparently exposing himself on this podcast. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I could not recommend this higher to anybody who's ever liked this band. Uh, what The genre that I like to classify this band is, is like inventive hardcore, where it's like, they, you know, they, they obviously put thought into their songs. Like, it's definitely not just like, all right, fast part, mosh part, fast part, mosh part. Like, you know, they, they take care of their songs in ways that, you know, some band, and like, not that there's anything wrong with bands that obviously stick to that formula, mm-hmm. um, but they... They definitely want to be more than just your average, you know, hardcore band that exists for a full length or two and then breaks up. Um, the song "Hell Can Wait." That song, like, literally gave me goosebumps. There's like a, it's like a minute into the song, it goes into this break that's just whew, unbelievable. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely think this could be one of my favorite EPs, LPs of the year, whatever we're gonna define it as. I would define it as an EP. Um, so yeah. Love the record. Keep listening to it and buy it. <laughs> what would you give it? I would say I'd probably give it. I'd say an eight. It's definitely as good as that. Like I was really excited to listen to to the Tiger's Jaw more than this, but it it quickly just bumped itself to the same level mm-hmm. as Tiger's Jaw for me. What about yourself, Joey? Uh, I'd say seven point five. I don't think I liked it as much as you, but I did really like it. Yeah. Roy? Uh, probably a six. Cool. Six out of ten. Scott is passing on this one. You're Which not is... going to give it a grade, Scott? Seven. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, Scott. Just ignore anything Scott says from I now know. on. Stephen Hawking, astrophysicist and arguably one of the smartest people on the planet, warned us about the possibility of aliens from outer space. Hawking says that if extraterrestrials visit us, the outcome might be similar to when Columbus landed in America. In other words, it didn't turn out too well for Native Americans. Okay, next up, we will be reviewing the movie Skyline, uh, directed by the Brothers Strauss and starring some douchebags. Turk <laughs> <laughs> from Scrubs. Or a guy from oh, Clueless. It had people in that. Who from Clueless? The the Turk from... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, maybe the, the characters were just douchebags, but whatever. Oh, yeah. Dude terrible. from Six Feet Under. Dude from... Whatever. Yeah. The, 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 yeah, Claire's already boyfriend. Uh, the, Bat- the, Batista from Dexter. Batista from Dexter. It had some faces in it. He but, was in The Wire, too. And the girl, there. one of the girls from Sweet Valley High. He was in The Wire. No, he was in Oz. 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 That's yeah. what it was, yeah. Um... Anyways, uh, this movie uh, is pretty much about alien invasion on Los Angeles and people trapped in a apartment and high rise condo. A high rise condo. That's uh, sure little is. background: the bro- the brothers Strauss, as they like to be called, which makes them sound even douchier, um, are known for their visual effects, and they've worked on like a ton of. Avatar and Titanic and all that shit, but Iron Man Two. Iron Man Two. Basically, any movie with any effects whatsoever. They worked on it. And is there a condo, right? Yeah, that's the one of the brothers lives in. That's his actual condo. Yeah. We can get into that later. I know it's fine. But Sorry. Uh, this is their first director. This is their directorial debut. So let's. Uh, I, th- I think we're gonna kind of all be close to the same page. Let's get it started with uh, our guest Roy. What were your thoughts on Skyline? Uh, it was beautiful as far as visually goes, like the, the, some of the shots and stuff like that. I mean, the graphics, the scariness of the, the aliens, the story was atrocious. I mean, yeah. just absolutely. They, they, for, they forgot to write a story, I think. Fifteen minutes in, I really wanted every character to die, like yeah. eaten immediately. Like whatever is attacking them, just do it to the, these guys. I, it was, yeah. And then the way the, the movie ended. Oh, yeah. I seriously wanted to pull, I wanted to burn the theater down. I was so <laughs> angry. <laughs> I was ambivalent at that point. I was. I knew it was going to be bad, but I knew I, as the movie progressed, I knew it was going to be bad. But when it ended, it was like you, really, didn't, you didn't know what level. Well, of that's bad. because this is being billed as an epic trilogy 
So this is only the beginning. There's more to come. Yes. Yes. That's why they left it open at the very end. Yeah. Two more. But visually, though, it was beautiful. I mean, it really was like like this could be if you had a good story. This could be really. Well, I'm reading on Wikipedia right now. Production cost five hundred thousand dollars. The actual like effects was ten million. Yeah, that doesn't. Surprise. So they obviously put their money into what they know, mm-hmm. and story is not. And that. like two hundred thousand dollars of that budget was destroying that Ferrari. Yeah, yeah. They probably did that visually. Yeah, it's probably visually. I doubt they destroyed a Ferrari. It wasn't really an alien. Except on it. <laughs> this, this was not a documentary, Scott. Oh, well, is... and I went to the movie not knowing anything. I mean, literally nothing about this movie. I mean, so I kind of went in not with any expectation. I That's fully be- went it's in. It's better that way. Yeah, because I went in with low expectations, and my expectations were met. Yeah. I would say. Did you Did you find because you went in with like no knowledge at all, Roy? Like, did you find? Any part of it like enjoyable, just like as just, far as campiness was concerned, or anything? Uh, or? No, I mean, and I, I was ex- I was honestly thinking like a half an hour into the movie, there's something going on here that I'm it's not, it's either so bad I'm just not getting it, yeah. or I mean, or it's just bad, or uh, something's going on that I'm just not getting. And as it went on, I was like, it's just not. There's nothing going on here other than just a lot of shit blowing up, which was awesome. Right. But, um, but there were there were moments that it was like, wow, this could be co- could be good, but it's just the story was so terrible. Yeah. It just went bad. Ray? I I liked the movie for what it was. I mean, it was terrible. Like, for every sense of the, the term. You know, I mean, the story... Like, everything that Roy said was completely true. Um, but it wasn't not entertaining. Right. It wasn't like I wanted to walk out of the movie. Uh, I mean, the only part where it was seriously like, you know, that I felt the same feelings as you as far as wanting to, you know, burn the movie theater down is like, you know, pseudo spoiler alert when they kiss towards the very end as they're being beamed up to the ship. That's when it was like, (laughs) at at that point, I, if I was even just doing like the lighting on the movie or was doing a boom mic, I would be like, dude, brothers, cut it out. This movie's ending now. We have to end this movie now. Anything that's going to happen after this is going to be terrible, no matter how cool it looks. But they obviously kept it going for another 10 minutes. and that 10 just, minutes too long. It just put that at a whole new level of bad. There, there were three other people in the movie theater with me. I watched an earlier showing, and we all, like none of us were together at all. But when that happened, everybody turned around and looked at each other like, <laughs> for real, <laughs> is this happening? So Scott, what would you think? I actually enjoyed this movie. Um, I went into it thinking it was going to be a serious movie, similar to Independence Day. And about 10 minutes in, when I saw Turk from Scrubs, I knew (laughs) that this was going to be a campy good time. And it fulfilled all of my wants and needs. But but you just said serious movie and Independence Day. (laughs) What's so funny? Yeah. Welcome to Earth. But, I mean, ser- like, serious, like... Serious, serious, like, the greatest movie of all time with the greatest American president of all time? I don't know what you're talking about, right? It's a very good movie. I just don't know if I walked into Independence Day thinking it would be a serious movie. Like, Independence what's, Day... In, what's not serious about I don't, is Earth Indi- ending? Is Independence Day a drama? I think it's... There's bad. dramatic moments, Ray. I know. Hey, I, stick to what you know, okay? Drama. <laughs> you work for TNT? <laughs> <laughs> we know drama. Anyways, Sorry, anyway, anyway, um, top to bottom, the movie was beautiful. I really liked the <laughs> alien creatures. I thought like the characters and the visuals of all the spacecraft and little like bears running around were really cool. <laughs> like it was bizarre. Like the crafts, the craft that they landed in was really mechanical looking, mm-hmm. kind of biological. But then there were like. Um, giant grasshoppers running around and then like swamp thing bears <laughs> and i didn't see how those fit together but they looked cool a lot of the like char- the alien characters and spaceships look familiar like from other things like the the bigger like insect looking things look like they were from other films like cloverfield or district nine <laughs> which is basically what a, it they just took it was cloverfield minus the shaky cam right the annoying part uh, um, I think I agree with everybody. Uh, ride the fence on that one. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I think it was a ter- it was a it. terrible movie. Like, uh, but visually it looked good. There was good action scenes. The story sucked. The acting sucked. You didn't care about the characters. You, you saw where they put their money into it. 
Exactly. It's like, I mean, but then again, you have to give them credit for, I mean, they took nothing and made a movie out of it with a $10 million budget and made their money back the first weekend. So like, I mean, but if if you had $10 and were at a theater and had nothing to do, that's the only movie playing, I would recommend it. Oh yeah. I I wouldn't, I definitely wouldn't go out like, I wouldn't go out of your way at 11 o'clock like we did to go see it, but right. Well, we're dedicated. We're craftsmen. (laughs) We are journalists. (laughs) We are. We'd like to thank Skyline for doing a special screening for us. (laughs) Uh, but yeah, it was. It kind of sucked, but it was entertaining. The question I have, though, is because obviously there's a lot of movies that come out that are self-aware. You know, like you, you, Cabin Fever. Like that movie. Self-aware, like in the sense of they know how bad it is. Not like Terminator Two. Right. Not like self-aware that they will des- destroy themselves. Oh, I thought they were completely self-aware. Now, I, but. That's that's the debate on the movie. I don't think they were. I oh, they were. No, I, I would. I, I would hope so. They call themselves the Brother Strauss. They are not self-aware. They are. They think this is definitely a piece of art. Yeah. From what they know, which is obviously visual effects, not yeah, this story is... writing or anything <laughs> like that. I would. That that's the thing where it's just like. It, I mean, I enjoyed the movie from a base level, but if they were aware of obviously how bad it was and, you know, made it chung and cheek. And, and if like, they, like, the way Cabin Fever was. Right. Like, Eli Roth kind of knew exactly what he was doing with that movie. There's enough nods to it being like, yo, we know this movie sucks, but thank you for watching, and this is funny because of this. Because you get to see, and that's the thing, where, like, we were all saying about how despicable the characters were, but I think the thing that makes the movie not self-aware is the fact they tried to create sympathy for the characters by like you know the whole idea of where the woman's pregnant and the other chick's smoking around her and it's like hey no like you're supposed to care about her and it's obviously just completely wedged in there in order for you to hey we know how to write a story like check this out guys like here this is this is the compassion you're supposed to feel yeah or then when the guy like clearly the couple is fighting very loudly in the bedroom and then the one girl spills out of the bathroom, and then the guy walks out of the bathroom being like, oh, I was just nailing that girl, but I didn't hear you guys out there. It, and it's like, it, he's supposed to be the evil one, and you're mm-hmm. not supposed to feel bad when he gets smushed. But all I did was hate the blonde girl the whole time regardless. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, From Sweet Valley High. I know. I have, a, I have a crush on her. Well, that scene, too, I mean, that, that one in the, in the very beginning where they're at the party and they're having the, the camera or the, the what's my digger? Telescope. Telescope. Yeah. <laughs> That's a big word. Use your words. I'm, all, <laughs> I'm always here for you. You know when they're looking at the other person's apartment and then they, they're like, oh, people are in there having sex and it ends up being two guys and they're all like, oh my God, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, you're in fucking Los Angeles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was just bizarre. That's why I was sort of like, there's, maybe there's something going on here that I didn't quite get. A yeah. deeper meaning. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, but particularly the, the scene where the girls start smoking and it all of a sudden, like, you're in the middle of a, like, the world is falling apart around you. You're like, please put that cigarette out. Yeah, you know. clearly there's more important. Put that Virginia Slim out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. So skyline, let's uh, let's let's wrap this up. Yeah, I, I would actually give it a seven. Holy shit! I think it's a good time. <laughs> <laughs> you give that a. I love you, Scott. Yeah, you're the counterbalance. The feelings mutual. <laughs> All right, a seven from Scott Ray. Uh, it's solid five. Okay, Roy. Four only for visuals. I would have to give it a four also, but yeah, if there were no visuals, well, if there's no visuals, it wouldn't be a movie. But. <laughs> if there were no visuals, you might be blind. <laughs> so yeah, Skyline, if you've got like nothing Skyline. better to do and want to throw away some money, have at it. Have a party. This episode is brought to you by To Die For Clothing. Established in 1997, To Die For Clothing is the product of two brothers' love for art, music, skateboarding, and family. Visit todieforclothing.com for up-to-date news, events, and product. Or you can visit their shop Monday through Friday, 11 a.m. to 6 p.m. in Costa Mesa, located at 1032 West 18th Street, Suite A5. Who inspires you? My own personal favorite item of clothing is the well-oiled machine long sleeve. I wear that, and I get compliments on that. So, 
You should check it out. Do they still make the, the Teen Idols they still Minor make, Threat shirts? They still make the X, X'd Up shirt, they call it. The, X, the X'd Up shirt? Yes. It's not a Teen Idols ripoff, but it's the X'd Up shirt. Yes. That is my favorite. Do they have any Taken shirts in stock? Taken shirts are no longer in stock. <sighs> That's eBay gold, Scott. <laughs> but yes, check out todieforclothing.com. Great clothing company. This week, our special guest slash interview is music industry veteran slash titan slash mogul, Roy Culver. Roy, yes, you sir. are our first out-of-town guest, and we really appreciate you being here. No problem. It's good to be here. Thanks for flying down. Yeah. No problem. Just, Just for this. this. Just for this. We flew him down on our massive budget that we got from todieforclothing.com. Any interested sponsor. <laughs> But uh, to give you all a background of where Roy, Roy Culver comes from, uh, he's worked in the music industry for quite some time. Uh, he began his career-ish at, and Roy, at any point, if I'm screwing things up, please mm-hmm. interject. Okay. Because um, you were working for EMI in Nashville, correct? I was. Yes. And you were slinging CDs, so to speak? Yeah, I was a sales rep for EMI from uh, 1998 to 2000. Back when people were still purchasing music. Mm-hmm. We're still purchasing purchasing music then, yeah. And that's when record stores existed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, so, yeah, you were kind of just uh, slinging CDs, making sure people were aware of the new releases and that type of stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. Just your your, uh, your your average sales rep job, so yep. to speak. Um, and then where you cut your teeth in from a label perspective was uh, Tooth & Nail Records. Yeah, I worked at the Tooth & Nail from 2000 to 2004. And you were... Uh, you were definitely a uh, instrumental part in helping kind of Solid State get its feet established, so to speak, because the idea had existed before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Solid State had kind of been a split off of Tooth & Nail uh, to deal with more of the heavier stuff, but they were looking for someone that kind of specialized in that, that could uh, market those records and help take the existing bands that we currently had and uh, kind of break them to a larger audience as well as sign new bands as well. Sure. So you, you, were, you were an A&R artisan repertoire. As a yes. Repertoire. Yeah. I was also the, uh, the head of the marketing, or not marketing, more or less distribution for Tooth & Nail for the first three years. And then we hired someone else the last year. So Yeah, yeah. So then that's uh, you, and you. So you made at that point you made the move from Nashville to Seattle. Yeah, I moved to Seattle in two thousand because they offered you a multi million dollar contract. Yeah, a lot of zeros. Yeah, a lot of zeros. <laughs> lot of zeros. <laughs> because that's when the music industry was fat, and they were able to oh, throwing we were just burning money, just throwing it out the window. Really. Right. Yeah. You had a special fireplace where you just burned the money. <laughs> it's like, hey, new under oath record. Let's burn some bags of cash. Yeah, absolutely. Um. And so, yeah, tell me a little bit about uh, that <coughs> that experience as far as, like, you know, bringing – because Tooth and & Nail and Solid State, like, especially in that era, was such a huge part of the independent music scene. Mm-hmm. And, like, a lot of those bands, you know, Zale and all that type mm-hmm. of stuff. Like, what what bands did you, uh, did you bring in personally that, you know, had kind of become important to that label, so to speak? Well, um, or even I, if they're not important. Well, the, the first when I first started uh, first started the label, I pretty much took over A and R for all of the existing um, solid state bands, which was about a dozen bands at that point. Um, the bands that I brought in later, uh, there's a band called the Agony Scene, uh, who I'm very proud of. Proud of the records they did. Unfortunately, they didn't last very long, but a few years. But they put out some great records. Three full lengths is good. Yeah, three full lengths is pretty good. Yeah. Um, and their first record was. Um, a really important record for me was the first band that I had worked with from the very beginning, from the signing to the um, getting them in the studio with Adam D from Kill Switch. This was one of his first records that he produced as far as outside of Kill Switch. Um, yeah, and working with them up to the point of touring and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Haste Today was another band that I signed. Um, that was towards the end of my time at Tooth and & Nail, um, and they've put out several records at this point. Okay, that makes sense as far as the, the bands you were signing and everything like that. So did you... Uh, Wait. What? What bands did you sign that look back today and you think to yourself, what was I thinking? <laughs> that, that's a mean question. It's not a mean question. And, and there, there isn't any. There isn't any. Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because at the time, you know, when you sign a band, regardless of like commercially successful or not... Mm-hmm. You're yeah. like, there's something in that. You know? Yeah, I approached my time in the music industry a lot differently. Uh, and working with EMI, I approached it very differently than, than many of those people did. For me, music has always been 
such an integral part of my life and such, uh, I mean, music saved my life, I feel like. And so for a lot of the bands that I w were interested in were the bands that I hoped would have the same sort of effect on other people. Yeah. Um, I mean, obviously I wanted them to sell records and I wanted them to be able to make a living at what they're doing and I wanted it to be profitable for us as a record label, but... Um, Moving units wasn't at the bottom of your line. It wasn't so always a no, it wasn't. Um for better or for worse, yeah. Yeah. It wasn't. Which is perfect for an A and R guy. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I don't really care about selling records as long as the band's good. Sorry guys. Well I yeah, I, know, I, I, I know. No, I but I approached I approached it more as a fan. I mean later on I began to approach music um more of, you know, is this band and, and Hasted Day was one of those bands that I enjoyed musically, but they were also a band that had a I felt like had a broader audience, uh, and they also had a team of people already. You know, we were working to get a, a team of people in place, and um, so there was a little more forethought into that as far as you know, we want this to be a big deal, yeah. Rather than just I like this band and I want them to you know put a record out. Yeah, and being that obviously, I mean, Tooth and Nail Solid State is obviously you know predominantly a Christian label, mm -hmm. um, and I know you experienced a lot of interesting stories in regards to. Because people had such a, a had such a perception of what Tooth and Nail and Solid State mm -hmm. need to be, and then as you guys progressed mm -hmm. at the label towards like you know yeah we sign bands that might not have mm -hmm. the as in your face spiritual agenda that yeah. some of our bands in the past were like what sort of stories do you remember where it's just like holy shit these people are crazy that they're accusing these bands of not being Christian mm -hmm. because they are picking their nose wrong. Yeah. Well, that, that was an everyday thing. Uh, primarily working at EMI, some of the stories from there, I mean, we had to deal with book, Christian bookstores a lot of the times. Um, and it got to the point, I mean, many of them would want to come out to a show, but for a lot of time, a lot of times the reason they even wanted to come out to a show was so they could find something they didn't like. Um, I mean, the, there's countless stories, but one story in particular was this one store who really wanted to go see MXPX. They went to see MXPX the next day, called back, and returned all their product because Mike Carrera had spit on stage, and they just thought that was just uncalled for. Christians don't do that. Christians yeah. apparently don't. They do don't that. have saliva. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and we one of the things my motives, you know, and one of, on my agenda for working at, at Solid State was trying to take those bands out of sort of the Christian ghetto. Um, <laughs> I'm not saying yeah, that yeah. badly, but I mean it. Just it, it is a ghetto, and it's a ghetto that can be very profitable if you play the you know the right card. Very lucrative, yeah, yeah, very much so. But trying to take bands out of that uh, and getting them hooked up with, with booking agents and those sort of things, and you know we would have you know promoters call us, and it was like you know I've never heard of this band, Living Sacrifice, but we had 300 kids show up last night, you know, at a show. You know, who who is this? What's going on? Right. And so, a lot of it was educating, but more than anything, you know, I really tried to get us out of of uh the christian sort of setting well because the label had been so established in that mm -hmm. it's just like, absolutely yo we know who we're going to sell it to we yeah. know who's going to buy our records but at the same time especially because there was so much crossover success mm -hmm. with certain bands yeah. that had like as dying is an example where mm -hmm. it's like they've had such a mainstream crossover where it's mm -hmm. like they're a christian band and they still claim that they are mm -hmm. you know and obviously under oath is the same mm -hmm. but it's like they've been able to appeal to beyond just like yeah. you said where it's like hey we're gonna play our cornerstones our purple mm -hmm. doors all of our festivals yeah and make a god-awful amount of money mm -hmm. at these things yeah but we want to play to someone outside of yeah. the organization so to speak and the temptation is to stay within that i mean just to give you sort of an example i mean there are bands uh that would do nothing all year um and play one show at cornerstone and and that show the merch sales alone would pay for i mean be their salary i mean we're talking you know on any given day stretch armstrong was one band that um within three hours had sold about eighteen thousand dollars in merch Three hours. It's unfathomable. Yeah. I mean, this was a time, though, you know, when a lot of those bands didn't tour as much. So kids, you know, the only opportunity to see them was at festivals like that, and they would save up money for months at a, at a time. You well, know, plus I imagine, I, I imagine, too, where it's like the kids' parents wouldn't allow them to oh, yeah. go to yeah, absolutely. these secular venues. Right, yeah. So yeah. yeah, I never even really thought of that until that years. Yeah, up. yeah, and that that genre, that genre and that niche has been changing. Um, you know, there, there's still Christian venues around the country, and there's still bands that play churches and stuff. But the kind of music we're talking about, for the most part, those bands are all out of the churches now. They're all playing clubs, and you know, make, many of them making a living at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just always found that a very interesting juxtaposition mm -hmm. of what people perceived 
what bands need to be. Mm-hmm. And like you said, people just literally came out to poke holes and oh yeah, whatever they felt. well, and there were people that would attack us as a label. I mean, there were there was there were companies that would return all of our product um, because of their perception. We had a, a, a staff photo, uh, and people returned it because a lot of us were wearing black. I mean, seriously, that sort of stuff. I mean, those are the sort of you were com- you were committing pagan ceremonies, whatever in their mind. With I mean, your black shirts. yeah, it was just atrocious. Some of the stuff. Yeah, and 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 a lot of times it was very much you know it, it was a problem for my conscience as well that some of the emails and companies we would have to deal with sometimes were absolutely terrible people. Yeah, and I, and I hated that we had to you know be involved with them in some ways. But yeah, cash is the true king. I won't say any more about that. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then um, you know, full disclosure, like Roy uh, came to work with. All three of us that are on the podcast currently, we all used to work for a label called Abacus Recordings, which was a subsidiary of Century Media. Um, and so, you know, Roy, Roy and us worked together for probably about two and a half years or so, give or take. Yeah. Um, but I know during that time it was uh, a lot of fun because we were, it was such a fly by the seat of your pants. <laughs> Every single day was something new and often tragic in many ways <laughs> such as you're not getting paid for about four months guys would you be able to live off of zero dollars um what's what's some of the uh i guess maybe maybe you could do fond slash funniest memories that you had working on that because essentially it was just like an upstart you know mm-hmm. we yeah. just we had you know two million dollars to spend mm-hmm. <laughs> To throw away. To, to throw hand over fist over certain bands. <laughs> or Latin hip-hop labels. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what, but what, what memories did you did you take away from that that you found? Let, let's start off with a funny one, and then you can then you can be endearing to us and say that we're the best people to work with of all time. <laughs> well, it, there was lots of, of crazy experiences. I would say, you know, sitting across the uh, desk from a, a guy that was selling Latin hip hop is, was one of the, the more, uh, fun and hearing him talking on the phone as if someone is really going to kill him if he doesn't get, I wonder where Lupe is buried. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so yeah, I mean, just uh, we're getting across the table from someone that was so, uh, in a different world than we all were, but yet right here with us talking to the same person we're talking to, trying to get basic bills paid and things like that. I got to do their artwork. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And just, just to put this in context for obviously people that have no idea what we're talking about, we, there was a subsidiary of Abacus Recordings that was uh, like El Cielo Music or something, or Siglo. Siglo, Siglo. Siglo Music that basically put out two records, probably spent... Oh, More on the budget on those two records than we did the entire time, probably. I think it was close, if I'm not mistaken, the budget was around $750,000 for these two records Crazy. that collectively shipped maybe about 8,000 units. Wrong. Um, the records <laughs> shipped 30,000 units, 15,000 each. Um, the records probably sold 200 copies right. collectively. So I was is, doing... that, is that bad? Well, you have to spend money to make money. That was always our motto. <laughs> and so it was really, really interesting to see, like Roy said, this guy who has come from a different world but is sitting in the same office as us and trying to sell records to no one that existed well you know it was interesting because like at tooth and nail we had started a hip-hop label too and uh i was not aware of it we did um and i had to sit on some meetings with some people from los angeles that came up that were christian gangster rap hip-hop guys and the stuff they would say i mean it was just mind-blowing i mean the stuff yeah it was just i mean they didn't exist um in my world at all uh so in some ways walking in you know dealing with this sort of stuff was sort of like i've seen this before but the the amount of the difference is the amount of money that Tooth and Nail was willing to risk on a project like that was incredibly smaller than what we Which were. Was probably point zero one percent less of what we spent. A lot on smaller. That. Yeah, yeah. One of your skills, Roy, is that you're you're definitely a good conflict resolution type person, where it's like. Mm-hmm. You're able to take a scenario that is maybe high charged and be able to try to talk it down to a reasonable level. Mm-hmm. What were some of your points where that got out of your control mm-hmm. and it were was blowouts? I I am specifically mentioning 
working particularly with a booking agent that might be notorious. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. let's let's not forget about a this agent. We won't name any names. Mm-hmm. He has uh, he has a reputation of being irritable, and mm-hmm. I know you had one very charming dealing with him over mm-hmm. the phone. Irritable like a bowel syndrome. Yes. <laughs> okay. I have rarely met someone that I felt. Um, was a character that I couldn't at some point find something redeeming about. Yeah, you're, that is what you're good at. Yeah. Unfortunately with him, he, he was good at sabotaging anything that might be good about himself. <laughs> um, yeah, he, he's the one person I look back over my almost 12 years working in music uh, that I would say, um, yeah, was just absolutely someone I... Um, would have a hard time ever working with again at any level. I think you, I think your exact words after you hung up the phone oh. with one conversation is I will fuck him with fire or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> yeah, it was probably not very nice. <laughs> <laughs> but it's understand I mean it was a very enraging moment. Yeah, well he he was everything became very personal for him. I mean everything was a personal attack, everything uh, and this had been months really of conversation and a band I was working with at that point, Napalm. Yes. Napalm Death. Um had uh, had basically fired him as their booking agent, and he blamed me for that. And um, yeah, he was just a very hard personality uh, to get along with. And and He's, I had a couple other bands that were working with him, the Spies Icon being one of them that I worked very closely with. Um, and uh, he threatened to kill you at one point, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Spies Icon, he he threatened them when they fired him to. Uh, I probably, they would they would say this, but. Uh, he sent them an email saying he was going to hire the next time they were in California, hire a Mexican gang to come rape them. That was what he told them. It's just, it's one of those things that like you hear the stories and you just, you almost don't believe they're true. Mm-hmm. Like they sound so yeah. made up. Like yeah. someone made that up. Yeah. He's, he's a character to be a movie about for sure. Oh, easily, easily. Yeah. Um, some of the, because, I mean, one of the, the, most admirable things I think about you is the fact that you are able to still retain your passion for music. And mm-hmm. when realistically, a lot of people get burnt out, mm-hmm. what, you know, with people that either want to enter the industry or, you know, in some way, shape or form, be able to kind of like work in it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, what did you do that was able to kind of see you through all that crap and be <laughs> able to like sort through it where you still can come out at the end being a fan of music? Uh, well, I got started in music, the music business, by volunteering at an all-ages venue in Nashville. Um, I really cared about a lot of bands that just weren't coming through town and began to book shows by, with some of those bands. I mean, back then, this was the mid-late 90s, it had been like Converge and Dillinger Escape Plan and Botch and blah, blah, blah. And um, I got to know, because of my working at that venue, I got to know people that worked at EMI. Um, so for me, it was always, uh, I was more of a fan, always, you know. Um, of music and the business aspect was something that I kind of learned as I went along. Uh, and as an A&R guy, you can get away with that because, it, you know, it's about sounding bands you care about. It's about sounding bands you think have a future. Um, for me, the, the industry has changed so much. Uh, it's definitely, you know, there isn't the sort of money that there used to be. Um, but I would love to see more people get involved in music that are actually music fans that care about it um, and aren't just looking in many ways just to make a quick dollar and take off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, hopefully, because obviously the music industry is thinned out so much mm-hmm. that people could go back to that. It's like, dude, yeah. if you're looking to work with independent music, like all of us have in some way, shape, or form, like clearly you're not making money off of yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, even though 6131 Records is Joey's cash cow, where it's like he doesn't even have yeah. any other jobs, he just is able to count his money that he makes off of mm-hmm. Touche More and Alpha and Omega. Yeah. But. Totally. <laughs> which is all sarcasm by the way but yeah obviously if you're getting involved with it then like like you said mm-hmm. you better be down for it for well right hopefully reasons. yeah i mean i i've been in meetings at emi where you know people that are making the decisions about a band's life their career these are the same people that worked at kellogg's a week before you know <laughs> these are people that don't they're that's you know that's the problem i think you know with a lot of the larger labels and not, i'm not demonizing larger labels but um you're gonna be working with people that what you create really is not a priority but you know what you can sell really is coming down to yeah because it's just it's it's a product yeah it's a, it's a piece of product yeah. it's pots and pans yeah. it's widgets exactly. as opposed to actual yeah. artistic integrity yeah. Would, and there probably needs to be those kinds of people that can you know get get through the clouds where I'm at but um, welcome to the real world I know, I know. <laughs> lights well, don't turn themselves on <laughs> <laughs> uh, the one thing that I always hear people are like 
I'm pretty sure you probably have an opinion on this, where it's like the idea of bands, once they're able to start making a living off of their music, mm -hmm. like does that, you know, start to play into their, the fact that music might not be as pure as it was when they were doing it for enjoyment and that type of stuff. Like, how do you find, how do you find that able to kind of live within the idea of art versus commerce? Well, that's the tragedy. It's the existential tragedy of our own lives. I mean, how do we maintain who we are but still make a living? I mean, with all of us. I mean, whether I work, you know, I've worked crappy jobs to pay the bills. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just part of that balance of how do we maintain but also stay a person of integrity. And I, I don't know where that line is. It's probably by doing podcasts like this. Probably. Donating your time. <laughs> donating the fact that we're obviously paying you off to be be a guest on this yeah absolutely I'll, you can just mail me my check That'd be I, see, I thought we were actually charging Roy <laughs> <laughs> yeah you gotta give him your 60. bill's in the mail don't worry <laughs> invoice you net 30 for the terms yeah absolutely now Roy mm -hmm. who was the scariest person calling you day in and day out looking for money when we were working at Abacus when I was working at Abacus yes <laughs> um <laughs> I wouldn't say there was nobody that was scary there were people that um, I felt bad for. <laughs> I, th I think maybe we need to get a little history about. Yeah, I think I think the impression of what it's like, you know, we can be scared if we if you owe person if you owe people money, but the fact that you know we legitimately owe people money, where mm -hmm. it was like, it wasn't anybody's fault besides the fact that we didn't have money to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think one of the more heart-rendering times was when we had to sit down as a staff and talk about, you know, the fact that people weren't getting paid and those yeah. sort of things. I mean, that was a hard conversation to have. And uh, But it's also, you know, uh, you know, from my own perspective, it's a story that I've been able to tell later on. I know in, in, in job interviews I've had and things like that, there's always a the question of what's the hardest thing you've ever had to do? <laughs> well, let me take you back to Abacus. <laughs> and just to, to reference this, because people always are like, you know, people still continually ask me, like, oh, you know, like, Abacus went out of business because whatever, you know, reasons A, B, and C. But it's like, we're referencing the fact that for a few months we didn't get paid because the check had not been cut from our distributor mm -hmm. to us. So yeah. basically we were in a limbo from when we were transferring from Century Media to be an individual company. So we basically just had no money for about three months. But we were spending money like we did have money, mm -hmm. which yeah. we knew it was coming, mm -hmm. but it was a matter of when that money was coming. Well, and when you have a company, the, the hope is, is that there's some momentum there that you can continue going. Um, yeah. I we mean, never found that momentum, did we? <laughs> yeah, we, we had spurts of it. We had spurts of and it. And I, I truly do believe that provided money was spent more appropriately, like pointedly so with the fact that we obviously invested almost a million dollars into a Latin hip-hop label. Um Reggaeton. Reggaeton. Sorry, sorry. It's a lot different. Right. So basically, you know, you look at half of the initial investment going mm -hmm. towards something like that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I believe that the, especially because the industry obviously thinned out mm -hmm. shortly thereafter, mm -hmm. but I truly do believe that it probably, Abacus could have existed for longer if it made financial, or if we would have had the money that got blown initially mm -hmm. <laughs> from that endeavor i don't know if you feel the yeah. same way well you know it's interesting because i think one of the primary you know the the things that make a business survive is you have a visionary but you also have someone or something in place that also provides all the checks and balances tooth and nail definitely had a leader who was very much a risk taker visionary but he also had someone else that um that was a voice of reason um and the owner of Abacus, uh, who was also the, one of the owners of Century Media, had that sort of checks and balances with Century that he didn't have with Abacus. Um, and I think some of us tried to be that 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 voice of reason, or try to be the you know offering an alter, alternate viewpoint, and you know just was dismissed. So. Yeah, it was definitely a very learning and growing experience. Mm -hmm. I know for Absolutely, every single yeah. one of us. Yeah. Roy, would if you were starting a record label, would you have a one lawyer or two? Two lawyers. <laughs> and would they be, in office. Yeah, would they be Stanford educated? <laughs> uh, probably, yeah. This uh, is so inside baseball, it's not. Nice. That's okay. <laughs> These are just jokes for your own personal podcast that you're taking. This is the B-side cut. <laughs> Bonus content. This is for radio. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've tapped most of my uh, okay. questions out. Um... 
Roy, yes. in all your years of working in the music industry, what record are you most proud of? Well, definitely the first Agony Seat record. Just because that was your first one? Well, it was my first one, but it was a band that I, yeah, that worked with from the very beginning. Still look back at it as a very, yeah, important record. I mean, it's a record that I still listen to, so I'm also a fan of it. Um, I mean, there's other records like Norma Jean, their first uh, full-length as Norma Jean. That was a record I worked with them really hard on, and it was a really proud moment to finally see that record come out, to see it do so well and be received so well. Um, but they were a band that was already on the label when I came on. I mm-hmm. took them on as a as A and R, but yeah. What was like a what was a uh, pivotal moment when you were working at Tooth and Nail that you saw things kind of you know flip a switch so to speak? Because it was during that time mm-hmm. when things really just like took off. Yeah, yeah. Like what was there was there a particular release? The point that I think things really turned around for for Solid State and Tooth and Nail was some Living Sacrifices. The Hammering Process record came out. Um, we were trying to make this band a full-time touring band, the band that can make a living from it. Uh, and we spent a lot of time uh, working on that record as far as you know, preparing for marketing. We had done one promotion that I was really excited about. Um, we just asked fans, uh, kids who are fans of the band, to all create a uh, website a website around the release and provided them with a certain amount of tools. And yeah, we had several hundred uh, websites that had been created um, for that record. Uh, but it just generated excitement. Uh, and at the time when that record came out, um, it was our high-selling uh, Solid State release mm-hmm. and the high-selling debut for the band. And I think that first week we did 2,500 or 3,000 3, copies, which isn't anything compared to what it is now. But if you look at the time frame where it was, um, it was remarkable for that band. I remember yeah. they were in Seattle. Um, the first week we got numbers and you know standing out in the crappy venue parking lot. And being able to tell them that, that was definitely a point when I was like, wow, this could actually be, you know. This is clicking. Yeah, it's coming together. Like yeah. the, the label's mm-hmm. getting out of the ghetto. Uh, there's bands that have the potential to, to go on to do other things. Yeah, you know? especially from a band that wasn't like that full-fledged touring band like yeah. you were saying. Yeah, they were wanting to. And they, these were guys, most of them were married, so they this was a big deal for them to be able to get out and do it full-time for several years. Yeah. Uh, and there were moments with Zayo, there were moments with Stretch Armstrong, some of those bands that... Uh, like, wow, this is becoming a big deal. This yeah. isn't just a small niche anymore. Sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. That's cool. Well, Quick hits. Who's the biggest pain in the ass? <laughs> Scott Arnold. Of the three of you? Yes. Oh, wow, definitely you, Scott. Favorite color? Black. <laughs> Favorite thing to drink? Probably water, I guess. I need it. All right, Roy. Boring. We really appreciate your time. <laughs> Thank you very much for uh, recording this with us. No and, problem. Uh, That's it for this episode of First World Problems. Join us next time where we will be reviewing the new Aglock, Marrow of the Spirit, the Have Heart DVD, the brand new My Chemical Romance, and some record I can't pronounce that Scott is bringing in called Harshash. Some crap. So be excited for that. Uh, We'll also be reviewing the movie Black Swan. And our guest will be Jason from To Die For Clothing. You can follow all of us on Twitter. Uh, I'm at Joey Cahill. Scott is at Scott Arnold. Ray is at XPurposeX. Or you can follow the podcast at FWP Podcast. Or, and you can also follow our friend at Dumpy Mudwater. And if you would like to call our Google phone number, our Google Voice, it's 657 859 one seven six one word <laughs>